I'm Nels Anderson. And I'm Jesse Turner. And I'm Lucas Litzinger. And welcome to Terminal 7. We are back once again, this time with a very, very special episode. Yep. We find ourselves on the cusp, right on the edge, on the verge of a date, a date with data and, and destiny. destiny. That's right. I, I'm awful. Uh, today, we are joined by the lead designer of this fine game himself. Our co-lead designer, is that what it is? Uh, well, former lead designer, that's true, perhaps, that's might true. be most technical. That's true. There's there's a little bit of a change of the guard. We'll get to that. But today, we are joined by Mr. Lucas Litzinger. Litzinger? Welcome. I yeah, would... Litzinger. Litzinger. It's go. Litzinger. L-I-T-Z-S-I-N-G-E-R. How's it going, <laughs> oh, going pretty well. Excellent, excellent. Very good. Um, so, we just, obviously, there's a bunch of stuff. There's... We, we would talk for hours and hours and hours, and as I'm sure some people think on paper they would like to hear that, um, in actuality, I don't think anyone wants to listen to us talk for like five hours. So we're going to keep our concentration a bit focused, uh, but... So we're going three hours? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A bit, a bit okay. focused. Like that. <laughs> yeah. um, but super quickly, just you've been the, the lead designer on Netrunner from basically from the game... From the inception, from the inception of, of the, the new, new edition. Of the yeah, up right. until oh, about yeah. now. Yep. Uh, but I'm a little bit curious, how long had you been at Fantasy Flight before that? All right, so I had been at Fantasy Flight for, I guess, about a year and a half, probably. Hmm. Maybe maybe a year. It wasn't super long. It was, it was pretty early in my career at Fantasy Flight. I've now been there approaching five years in December, so... It's crazy how fast it's gone. Wow. But yeah. I hadn't been there too long. And so to kind of get to take lead on a project like Netrunner, I think just goes to show you how far under the radar the game really was <laughs> at the time. Like, it, I don't it, think anybody really expected much from it. It to wasn't be due to your legendary skill and reputation? No, I think I, I just kind of <laughs> lucked into it. Yeah. Well, how did you actually get to that point? Like, had you worked in other board game company, card game companies, whatever, before Fantasy Flight? No, I graduated college and got a job at Fantasy Flight, and that kind of started my career. So wow. it's been a hell of a ride. Well, well there that, you go. That's that, pretty cool. That's great. <laughs> um, did you did you grow up in Minnesota, or did you move there specifically for the gig? Yeah, I moved there. I moved here for the gig, and you know, it's the gig that keeps me here because I. You <laughs> might have heard something about our weather, specifically in the winter months, and everything you've heard and more is true. Oh, I've I grew up in Wyoming. I I, okay. I know what that's like and worse. Believe you me. <laughs> right. Uh, well, did you grow up the in... day I moved up here? Yes. I moved up here from Missouri, but the day I moved up here, it there was a big snowstorm. It was the big snowstorm of 2010, and there were 22 inches of snow that fell within, like, uh, a 24-hour period. So it was just snowing and <laughs> oh snowing God. and snowing. I'm like, I had no idea, no idea that I moved to the North Pole, but apparently I did. <laughs> Surprise! So I was, just, yeah, I was just dragging my furniture through this, like, snow drift <laughs> to try to get it up into my apartment, and it was... It was quite the experience. Experience. Yeah, you uh, did, yes. You didn't just turn around and say, okay, it obviously doesn't want me here. Well, there was too much snow. I couldn't leave. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I was trapped. It's like, I guess I'm here now. <laughs> and then you can never leave. No, you can't because I, I don't think I saw a blade of grass for six months. Like, it was just snow, <laughs> snow, snow. Like, it didn't melt. It just hung around in, like, these piles. But at that point, you're in too deep. Yeah, you pretty much are. So did, too you, late. did you go to school in Missouri? I did, yeah. I went to the University of Missouri, cool. and I actually studied. 
I have a journalism degree, but I studied advertising. So really, a madman, like copywriter. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it is. <laughs> Interesting. 100%. So that is uh, a journalism slash advertising degree is not the not that there is a traditional route, but that's certainly not a common route into becoming a board and card game designer. No, it's it's not exactly a common route. But the interesting thing is, you know, a lot of people I meet, like, there there isn't really a common route. Like, yeah, everybody yeah. comes from, from different backgrounds, and I think that's really cool because they all kind of bring their own interests and bring their own perspective to it. So, I mean, now you'll have more game design programs that are cropping up across the country, right. but, you know, that's kind of a newer thing. Yeah, yeah. So did you, but did you go to like J school for the purposes of leveraging that into game design somehow? No, no. Okay. I mean, honestly, like, you know, just gaming and playing games was a hobby. And so it really wasn't until I saw a specific job posting on the Fancy Flight website, because I just went to the Fancy Flight website every once in a while, uh, for the Game of Thrones living card game specifically that I was interested because I, I played that game. That was like the second CCG I played. The first one was the Lord of the Rings card game by Decipher that was based on the movies. And after that one, I swore off CCGs. I'm like, I will never play another collectible card game. My parents were right. It's a money pit. You know, I'm not going down that route. And then I got this Game of Thrones board game. And I mean, it shows you like those little catalogs kind of work. I was flipping through the FFG catalog and it's like, oh, there's a card game. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I don't play these anymore. But I guess I could get a starter just to mess around with it for fun. You know, I'll just buy the starter and play it, and that's it. Just so I bought the starter. <laughs> that's yep. No, nothing. And of of course, you know, the rest is history. I, I couldn't <laughs> stop playing it. The game was too good; it needed to be played. And so I, I played that game for a couple of years, and then they moved to the LCG model. And a lot of competitive players kind of quit the game at that time because it was like weird like it was a weird transition it was a new thing mm. we didn't really understand what what it meant for the game and like you know support tournament support was kind of in flux interesting but i didn't know that over time a lot of those lcg uh the lcg model was kind of proven a lot of the you know ccgers like myself began to come back to the game and so when i saw a position for it i'm like i love this game like i'm really familiar with the game i actually think it would be a lot of fun to work on it and so that's what led me to apply to ffg man crazy um, and they're just like cool. and they're like yes come aboard sir no, not exactly. <laughs> they're, like, so, they're, like, they're like, no one wants to move to Minnesota. Will you come move here? <laughs> I mean, uh, so I went through the interview process, and I, I flew up to FFG, and I actually brought a list of, like, ten things I wanted to change about the game, you know, to, to improve the game. Oh, the there improved. you go. Smart. Yeah. Initiative. And uh, Put put that tip I, in your pocket, feature game design yes. aspirants. There you go. Maybe, maybe, because uh, I was actually a finalist for the position, uh, but I didn't get the position, which is why I've never actually worked on Game of Thrones, a card game. <laughs> oh. did, did did Damon scoop it out from underneath you? He did. He yeah. did, oh. didn't he? Oh. he did. That's scooper. Ah. Yep, the, the rivalry is real. <laughs> 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 and now we get to work on a game together. It's actually cool. But, yeah, so that position went to Damon, but then... Uh, and, you know, I'm like, you know, screw it. I don't I don't need to start working immediately. I'm going to, like, take some time off. I'm going to write some stuff. And uh, my parents seem to be pretty supportive of that. So, like, that summer, I didn't really do anything. I wasn't even, like, applying for jobs. I was super lazy. It, it's not good. I don't I don't really, looking back, I'm not really sure exactly what my mind was other than that, like, this is the last summer I ever get. Yeah. Probably, you know, so why not? Why not just sit back and take it? But anyway, a couple months later, I actually saw another position. So I just sent Michael Hurley an email being like, oh, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm actually still interested. If you need someone, he's like, well, this is actually a, a game design position for the board game department, but we need somebody else for the LCG department, so it's yours if you want it. 
since uh, we're expanding again. So I'm like, okay, sure. Cool. So what was the, uh, did you, so there's an opening in the LCG department. Did you just go straight into working on Game of Thrones? No. So the first game I worked on was Warhammer Invasion. Oh, okay, okay. that was the and, um, fantasy Warhammer based one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Warhammer fantasy game. Yep. So my first couple of weeks at work, I actually just kind of read the army books, like from, you know, front to back, just to get myself familiar with that that IP because I hadn't really known a whole lot about it beforehand and that was that was pretty cool nice and then then while working on that I also started working on Lord of the Rings mm. uh, as Nate began to transition over to some other stuff and that was that was super fun as well that's the co-op card game right yeah yep. that's the cooperative LCG we hear a lot of things about that game actually yeah. it's, 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 it's a great game it's one of the better uh, co-op experiences you can have with a card game like that right I mean you can play solo you can play with multiple people you know up to four and the synergies that you can kind of take into the game is a lot of fun. And it's actually really fun to design for because, like, each scenario is like a mini game. Mm. You can add new mechanics to it because you have a rule sheet and the players expect you to add new mechanics and to come up with something cool and unique for that scenario. Oh, and so it's actually really, really cool to work on that game. Yeah. Sweet. Okay, so you did, did a little bit of Invasion, a little bit of uh, Lord of the Rings. And then from there, it was basically, as you've talked about before, Hey, we we managed to get the license for this weird old '90s era yep, game. Yep. <laughs> cool. Yep. There's this weird old '90s game lying around, and so showed some interest in it. And then when it kind of came time to start working on the core set, I had a little bit of bandwidth, mm. and I was actually still working on Invasion: Lord of the Rings. But when I started working on that runner, I started moving off Invasion so I could free up more time for it. Right. So I still worked on Lord of the Rings while working on Netrunner uh, initially. Cool. Were you always a fan of the genre of Netrunner? I, I hadn't actually played the original game right. uh, before I started working on it, but I had always heard about it as one of those Holy Grail CCGs. Right. <laughs> and I love dead CCGs because they're usually <laughs> right. cheap to collect. But Netrunner, <laughs> Netrunner, you couldn't just get, like, here's 20,000 Netrunner cards for, like, 15 bucks. Like, you, you couldn't get it. And so I'd never actually collected any of its cards, but I was always curious about it. And, yeah, the theme is definitely appealing, the cyberpunk uh, sort of thing on it. And and the fact that you know it's a Richard Garfield game, and it's completely different uh, from Magic: The Gathering, yeah. was was pretty awesome as well. It's like that. Uh, it's like that guy knows what he's doing or something. <laughs> yeah, I think he does. Yeah. <laughs> he, he might. He might. We might go somewhere. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, we won't. Um, you actually last year gave a fantastic talk at the uh, practice game design conference at NYU, um, yep. where you talked about kind of taking the game from that original Richard Garfield 90s era version to the version we know and love now. So we won't rehash that because that whole talk is online. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but there's some other stuff we kind of wanted to talk about. So we mentioned this earlier. We are at kind of this this very <laughs> mon- momentous sure, sure. changing of the guard moment. Um, so we're about to have the, the final big box expansion for of the first four, at least. Who knows what future ones there may be. But this is the one that has NBN. And some new runner factions. We'll get to that in a bit. Right. And then after that is the uh, the Mumbat cycle, which is taking place in cool cyberpunk future India. Yep. Yep. But that is actually the last cycle for the game that you will be the lead designer on. That's correct. Oh, yep. yeah. Lucas, we'll miss you so much. I know. I, I'll miss <laughs> Netrunner, but, you know, I feel like I've had a good run with the game. I'm very content with the work I've done on the game. And, you know, (laughs) you want to keep the game fresh. And, you know, one of the biggest things I I set out to do when, you know, designing the first couple cycles and boxes and stuff was to to try to make sure that we explored 
the design space of the game without overloading the game with new mechanics because sometimes it's very easy to just kind of fall into like let's add new stuff to the game and right mm. uh you know just throw a keyword or something in there but what i found was that netrunner was very resilient without adding and stooping to that kind of level and in fact a lot of the things that you think of as keywords like you know doubles or currents aren't really keywords because the rules text is on the card like it, it functions as the card says right and so i'm actually pretty pretty happy with you know where we're able to take the game and kind of push the game without actually adding a lot of complexity so that a new player can sit down at the table and just kind of read the card and kind of understand what it does right yeah um, that's definitely a thing like i played magic for a little bit back in the 90s and then weirdly a bunch of my friends up here got into it like four or five years ago and occasionally just like you know when they were starting out i'll be like oh i remember these i'd look at the cards i'm like i they're like 10 words in bold in here <laughs> and i don't know what any of them mean <laughs> right exactly yeah, so that's, it's interesting that that, that was kind of a, a very deliberate design goal when it came time to building out, like, the, you know, the, the Genesis cycle and lunar cycle, spin cycle, all that stuff. Were there any other, like, major design goals you had as you were kind of looking at the first big chunk of game? Because it feels like kind of, you know, once there's been a major expansion for each faction, that feels kind of like the first chapter of the game, if you will. Right. So was there, were there other, like, big design goals that you had in mind that either did or did not work out for that first, like, chapter? That's a good question. I wouldn't say there were a lot of overarching design goals. Usually each set would have a design goal or two, mm. and, you know, sometimes you hit them and sometimes you don't. Uh, Genesis was kind of, like, the, the initial design for that was not only to fill out the stuff that we couldn't actually fit into the core set, but it was to kind of explore traces and make tracing matter. And, mm. you know, we actually explored... A lot of stuff that you know ended up getting cut just because it, it it felt like too much too soon, and so that theme kind of uh, didn't quite work its way through as initially intended. But for the most part, we were just looking to kind of grow the game horizontally. Like horizontally, you always want to just try to add more options rather than like kind of reinforce existing options and try to push the power level not vertically but horizontally so that you know, you don't have power creep in a game. Right. Like it's inevitable to have a little bit of power creep. Like there's always going to be more new synergies and stuff gets better, but uh, you know, you want to try to hopefully give players a puzzle to solve with their deck building. And so that's something that I think I kind of learned through the first cycle in the first box was how to do that a little bit better. Mm. And you know, there's always stuff that you kind of look back on and scratch your head a little bit like, Oh, how did that end up happening? But I was also very conservative early on with the power level of stuff just to make sure that we didn't have anything that breaks the game because I think, you know, having to, like, ban a card is one of the worst sins that a designer right. can commit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if you have to fall on one side of that line, there's definitely a, a... The tamer side is the far more, you know, tolerable side to fall on, it feels like. Right. On the one hand, you know, the card goes into everybody's deck and everybody hates it. On the other hand, it just goes into everybody's, does you know, binder and they forget about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not there's not there's ideal, but if you got to pick one, yeah, I know which one. Right. To pick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, interesting. So well, let's talk a little bit about Data and Destiny because I think, you know, because the game has not only is it fundamentally asymmetrical, but in terms of its two asymmetrical sides, it's even asymmetrical there where there's it is, yeah. four corporations, but only three runner factions. So lots of people before Data and Destiny was announced were thinking it's like, well, okay, sure, it's going to be NBN, but NBN and are yeah. they going to wrap back to shapers? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be right. a bunch of the never-ending cycle? Yeah, is yeah. it going to be a bunch of neutral stuff? Yeah. But then, but then you guys blew the lid off everything. And I got to say, when those 
new runner factions hit, it was a crazy time. It yeah. was so chaotic. Everybody like, what, what, what about this? What about this? And, yeah. Right. So, yeah, no, that was a lot of fun to see. And, uh, you know, some people kind of danced around it, but I don't think anybody really guessed exactly what it was, which was cool. Yeah. So how did, like, I, I was that the very first you guys, idea you guys had? We were thinking about what to do for the fourth box. Right. I imagine well, it was not. <laughs> it wasn't exactly. So... We knew that we wanted to do, you know, deluxe expansions for each faction. And there were the model that many of our other LCGs have taken where you just have the entire box be one faction. Right. Yeah. So, for example, you could just have a Hospiroid box, and it's only Hospiroid. Or a Shaper box, and it's only Shaper cards. But I did not like that idea for two reasons. The first reason is that it is an asymmetrical game where you play both sides. And in our other LCGs, you only play one side at a time, so it's not as big of a deal if you boost one faction. But right. here, you're not only boosting that faction, but you're boosting that entire side of the card pool at the expense of the other side of the card pool. And then secondly, giving that many new cards to one faction in a game with seven factions felt like it was too much too soon. So it's like, we need to dilute this card pool somehow so that you don't just give, like, here, here's triple the amount of Hospiroid cards you know, or triple the amount of Jinteki cards so early in the game. It's like, of course people are going to play them. Right. <laughs> and, and that's a problem too. So so we came up with the idea of doing dual faction boxes and I, I felt like this kind of, you know, gave us the control that we needed to make sure that neither of those two things kind of happened, especially early in the game's life when the card pool was small. That totally, and, yeah, that makes sense. So did you kind of like, in the back of your mind, you're like, all right, one and one, one and one, one and right. one, one and... Crap. Yeah, right. <laughs> Pretty much. So yeah, you start doing the math and pairing up the factions, and you realize like, well, we do have four corp factions, and we do have three runner factions. So I guess we need to come up with something for this half of the box, as far as the runner side goes. And kind of the idea that I had from the very beginning was to add neutral runners, mm -hmm. which are kind of like a fourth runner faction, and that they're unfaction. Right. And that was kind of the idea that was pitched initially, and everybody thought it was a good idea, and so. That was the plan, but it wasn't until we actually got to making Dad and Destiny that we discovered, you know, a couple of problems with just doing pure neutral runners, and we felt like we could actually do something cooler. Can you talk about what those challenges were, at least yeah. at a high level? For sure. So the the main problem, well, there are a couple problems, but one of the main problems of doing just pure neutral runners is that it it basically removed one of the main ways to balance powerful cards which was to stick them in the neutral faction mm, as it were yeah. <laughs> and right. add influence to them so for example things like lucky finder the source we feel were okay cards to print because they're neutral right and everybody has to pay influence for them so by committing to neutral ids we're saying nah you get these for free it's fine it's not a problem right which we were okay with them getting say like those two cards but we were uncomfortable with uh, them getting future cards. I didn't want to close off that design space so that we could never make those powerful cards that you could choose to include at the costs of, of deck building. Like, say we want to create a, a five-influence neutral card. Right. So you could run three copies of it. It's really exciting, but that's all your influence. Like, I think that's an interesting choice. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. might want to explore that in the future. And so by making them neutral, we can't really do that anymore. Right. Like, somebody has that for free, and so we can't push kind of the power level of those cards as Right, much. okay, that, make, that doesn't make sense. Because I guess to this point, the most influence that's ever been on a neutral card is just two. Right, yep. Yep, and so you still got that three, four, or five slots to right. mess with, oh my which God. I'm sure we'll do. What does a five influence a neutral card look like? <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really excited to see, to, to see what that would be. Very, <laughs> yeah. very powerful, it's very powerful. <laughs>
So, so that was one challenge. And, and then kind of the second challenge we, we ran into is that by making them neutral, you actually basically destroyed the identity of each runner because they can use other neutral cards when the whole idea is that, you know, these don't fall into any categories that are easily definable because they're all unique and they all have their own motivations, which is why they don't actually fall into Shaper or Criminal or Anarch. And so by creating neutral IDs, you're like, ah, you know, Apex and Sunny, they can use each other's stuff. Why? Because the game says so. Thematically, right. it makes no sense. Oh, and it doesn't. Of course, of course. Right, and it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. So, you know, the first uh, kind of pass on the set that I did, they were neutral, and I was running into these problems, and so... So you'd already you know, kind of settled on Sunny, Adam, and Apex, and it's right. just, as their initial incarnation, they were all just neutral. They're all just neutral. Oh, yeah, and I mean, and we, and we went through a ton of other ideas as well. I'm sure. About, like, how to, how to make these runners cool, but, like, the whole idea was that they were neutral, um... Uh, in some fashion or not aligned with the the three and so when it wasn't working we kind of went back to some of the discarded wildcard ideas that we had to throw around and we did throw around uh to see if they would work and the kind of the one that that made the most sense was make them their own faction mm. like let's just introduce each one as its own thing and so that's kind of the the way that we went and it seemed to work really well because they each can retain their identity have powerful cards that nobody else can have so we can push push the power level of those cards and also kind of it safeguards the neutral card pool from from future uh cards being able to be used with them right right man what a what a play (laughs) i gotta gotta say that's a really really awesome answer to that issue well because i remember because a lot of players were always thinking of neutral runners being in the mix and then when neutral influence hit i could totally see where that would just be an absolute mess yeah (laughs) right it works in draft because you know influence doesn't matter in draft right which I think is a good thing, but yeah, but it needs to stay in draft, you know, and, and not be brought over to constructed. So we have our neutral runner; it's the it's the mask. But as far as other neutral runners in the future, I'd I'd be pretty surprised if we ever actually truly went down that route for those particular challenges. Right, for sure. Interesting, cool. Um, so when it came to actually, okay, so you guys make the decision. We'll we'll make them all their own little micro faction. Um, right. Were there any other, like, major design considerations that fell out once that decision was made? Like, okay, well, we still have to wrangle the fact that they're all going to have relatively narrow card pools because they get the, they get one-third of a deluxe, deluxe one-third of one-half <laughs> of a deluxe box, so one-sixth of a deluxe box, and that's kind of it. So, yeah. I mean, obviously the answer to that, to at least some extent, was like, well, just give them a crap load of influence so they can pull in other cards. But, was, yes. like, was that... Did you guys try to do other stuff to get to that point, or was that kind of like, well, that's the thing we can do, so that's what we're going to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, giving them more influence, like, neutral runners were always going to have more influence uh, just because their card pool was smaller and they wouldn't have as many many tools to come from. Um, but, yeah, finding finding the right influence for them uh, was definitely one of the the big decisions that we made because, you know, just a couple influence here or there can, can really make a difference as far as what you what you can pull into but the other thing that we could do once we divide them into the neutral from the neutral factions into the mini factions was that we could push the power level of their cards a little bit more mm-hmm. so you know things like apocalypse right. was uh, <laughs> kind of a problem because you'd actually use it like out of sunny uh, with their cloud breakers and then 
now you know it's okay because she pays influence for it but before it was like that's a problem you know that wasn't an intended interaction right Uh, and so we we were able to keep some of the cards that we were otherwise going to have to change and then kind of boost the power level of other cards just because we knew that you know you wouldn't be sharing them with other runners that you weren't supposed to right so it was a really useful uh tool just to make sure that they could each you know have their own unique fun stuff to do and I, i think it turned out really well the the other thing that it meant is that we could go back and do new graphic design for those runners and change the templates, which ah, yes, also yeah. this, also helps them feel unique. Yeah, yeah, we talked to this. We talked to Zoe about this briefly when we interviewed with her quite quite a while ago. No, um, one of my favorite like small visual design things in the game, which I didn't notice until I've been playing the game for easily over a year, is like. You know, okay, you look at the cards, you're like, oh, the Shaper ones are green, the Criminal ones are blue. Mm-hmm. Then you really look at that template, yeah. and there is so much other detailed information communicated on those cards. Everything from, like, the weird little connector right. cord, like, oh, the Shaper one's got this weird, like, bead thing w- wrapped around it, and the Anarch one's all, like, covered in tape and shit. Um, so I'm very excited, because I, I haven't, like, deeply looked at all the upcoming cards yet, because I would like to see them in my hands first. But I'm, I'm very excited to see where, you know, all the, all the whoever did the, did the templating, templating art for those mini factions chose to express those small details, because it, it's one of those subtle, but actually very, very cool things that I like a lot. Yeah, no, uh, the templates for the game are fantastic. Michael Silsby, one of our graphic designers, did all the corset ones. And then uh, he and Mercedes Ofem, who does a lot of the LCG stuff, uh, worked on the new Runner Faction ones as well. And so like, nice. it, it really is a work of art when you see all those small details and, and see what they can pack into yeah. kind of a, a really small portion of the card just to give it its own personality. Right. So that, that stuff is all done in-house. It's all done in the house. Cool. Yeah. So our, our art is, you know, freelancers. We yeah, yeah. we basically solicit it, but all of the graphic design is done in house. Ah, uh, interesting. I mean, I guess that's probably even more impactful or important, I guess, for all the the board game lines. Yeah, I mean, you want to make sure that the graphic design of a game is incredibly consistent. So you kind of need, you know, one or two people to be in close communication while they kind of put that together. Mm. And and so it's uh, and not, not to mention like usually our games, especially the board games, like they'll have a ton of different components that you're trying to to weave together, and so it makes a lot of sense for us to right. retain as much creative control over that process as possible, especially when you're talking about like UI, like you're you're basically trying to figure out what is the best way to present this information right. to the player, and so you want to work closely with the developers to make sure that you get it right. Well, relatedly, I mean, there's a little bit of a tangent, but whatever, that's what we do here. Uh, you recently also worked on a board game, which was an, if, that's right. which was an adaptation of Firaxis's PC game, XCOM. Right. So, yep. one, I mean, that's was that was that kind of like, because obviously you'd been in just in Netrunner land for quite a while, so was it kind of nice to, to briefly, like, stretch your limbs back over into the board game space? Right. Uh, yeah, that was cool. I mean, that was kind of part of my transition. So I was in the ah. LCG department, and I actually transitioned uh, kind of early last year into the board game department. But as part of that transition, I was uh, able to keep working on Netrunner because I wanted to get through, you know, Data and Destiny, and then uh, Mumbet as well. But Data and Destiny was kind of like, I know I have to get through here. You know, I need to keep working on the game. And so XCOM was kind of my my secondary project, uh, which kind of you know sometimes it's primary, sometimes it's secondary, depending on how much time you're spending in Netrunner land versus XCOM land. Right. But XCOM was kind of my primary project that I was able to do some design on and then also develop with uh, Nikki Valens uh, after Eric Lane came in and kind of uh, gave us the vision for the game. So that was, that was a lot of fun. 
So with something like that, like the, the actual design process, how much does it differ from what you're doing with Netrunner? Because I imagine, you know, with Netrunner, it's a lot more like you're trying to figure out how individual pieces slot in, but it feels like they're a little bit more compartmentalized than in something like a board game where it's just like, well, all of this stuff has to fit into the whole. Yeah, board game is actually really challenging compared to a card game, not only because you have more components than just cards. And so right away, you actually have this barrier to test the game where, you mm. know, external testers for card games are actually somewhat easy to find just because you just have to commit to like printing out some cards and, you know, throwing them in your Magic the Gathering sleeves for the most part and you're ready to go. Yeah, but like a board game, that's it's a little bit different. Like you have to mock up all of these different components. And so like, you know, that in itself is a challenge just to try to, you know, allow people, give people the resources and know how to like make the game and cannibalize bits from other games just to help you like test it out. Right. Not to mention testing with an app, which is one of the cool things that XCOM does is yeah, it yeah. creates an app into the game. So you also have the technical side of side of that as well. Uh. Um, but yeah, me, you know, messing around with a base game and kind of pushing and pulling on the mechanics and tugging and redesigning and redeveloping. And you know, you, it's it's like taking a test, but there's no answer key. You feel like you're. <laughs> oh my god! You feel like you're that's always. What, that's what my job feels like every single day. <laughs> yeah. I've just never you know, really encapsulated so like precisely and pithily, but oh god, yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, there's all these options and you know and things that you're like circling and checking off, and it, you think you're right, but you have no way of knowing. Yeah. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm stealing that one, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. For sure. Um, yeah. Well, I remember Jesse and I play tested the uh, the sand sand cycle. Right. And we had our like arts and crafts party night where we cut out like a bunch of cards, five hundred cards, and sleeve them all. And that alone was taxing. So it I can't is. imagine being like, uh, okay, this um, this eraser, this is an interceptor, and then this paper clip. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much. I get, I guess I get, an XCOM sniper. Also, like, FFG tends to just bring the production quality, like, crazy. Yeah. Uh, when, when, when you guys actually release stuff. <laughs> so it must be just pretty great pushing around little bits of paper and... <laughs> oh yeah. Things before you're like, oh, it's gonna look wicked, man. Just, just, just hold, just hang in there. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> this is this right. is just a stamp taped to a penny right now, but it's gonna be cool. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you have to use your imagination a little bit. Honestly, though, I do actually like playing with prototype bits because, like, you don't have all of the production qualities kind of wow you about the game. So, like, the game right. has the to stand right. right on it on its own. And like my first XCOM board that I mocked up was just like atrocious it had like super colorful it was called the clown board just because it was like super colorful all of these things that are like you know blues and reds and greens like in your face like with no gradients you know no shadow it's just like block colors everywhere and uh so the game has to has to be good for you to enjoy it this, this, <laughs> when you this have monster. components like that exactly <laughs> like it's so I mean, that sounds like the kind of thing that I would I would make if left alone to my own devices, which I'm very glad I can always work with Jesse on things, and he can make a thing not look like butt. Um, right. Is the process by, is it literally you just like open up a thing in Photoshop and just be like, this is gonna fit onto two huh. A13 pieces of paper. Here we go. Uh, yeah, InDesign. You know, and I try to stay away from okay. Photoshop as much as possible. I find InDesign a much more user friendly uh, program for my my needs and. Layout. That's probably about right. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you just open up InDesign, you figure out you know how big you want it to be. Uh, thankfully, we don't have to like tape eight and a half by eleven pieces of paper. We have a plotter printer that we can, you know, throw stuff out on, so you can get the actual size that you want printed uh, in the office, which is very useful. 
Oh, nice. It's, it's like one of those big, like, crazy architect, like, blueprint-style yeah. printers? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, yeah. that's awesome. Of course, that, yeah. that makes sense as a thing you guys would have. <laughs> yeah, they have, yep. like, four dot matrix printers just to, like... <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, you do have to wait a while but uh, for it to come out, but once it does, it, it's, it's very handy. Man, that's cool. cool. Very cool. Um, so then, like, as, as you're moving along, I realize we're talking about board games now, but whatever, this is a process. I find it super interesting. Um, as you're moving along, like, towards having an actual, like, big, real prototype, like, okay, now we're going to have to start figuring out how to do the sourcing and costing for how we're going to put these plastic pieces in the box. Right. Like, is that kind of a process that you, as the designer, are still heavily involved in? Or is it kind of like you basically give the specs to, like, some of the art logistics sure. i have no idea what sorts yeah, of people yeah, yeah. just be like i help with this this is your job now please goodbye yeah so uh, i mean it, it's kind of the producer's job to do that that said most of the stuff that i work on i was also the producer so like xcom i, I produced oh, nice. um, so, so yeah, yeah it is just your job <laughs> yeah so it's my job for the most part. and honestly i like that because you kind of retain control of the game because you're gonna be like nope that doesn't fit in the budget can't go in you know like we can't afford another 25th ufo we can only have 24 like it's too expensive <laughs> uh but you know you're gonna get to get to figure out like you know how many cards you're putting in how much plastic you're putting in uh the different sorts of things that you can actually afford to put into the game and uh, make judgment calls and yeah you do have to work with the production department like and they'll actually talk with the factory and then you work with the art department and you tell them and you give them art descriptions and tell them what you need and then you work with like the media department for example with making the app and technical specs though thankfully right. i didn't have to do a whole lot of that since uh nikki is very up on unity and actually designed the first kind of mock-up uh oh, cool. box version of the app so that was really nice. helpful because we didn't actually have to rely on someone else to get back to us we could just go in and make changes and she just did it right in unity so that was that was very helpful but yeah, oh, you're nice. just kind of talking with a bunch of other departments and you, you kind of start like early in the process and that's always the hard thing is, you know, over the course of the design of the game, like things change and then you're trying to make sure that it affects the other departments as least, you know, the least amount possible mm. just because you already have all these balls in the air. Right. So is it almost kind of like you have like this, okay, well, we think the game will sell X number of copies, thus right. we can afford to spend about Y number of dollars on the game. So it's kind of like, here's your shopping list. Each piece of plastic costs this many cents, and this <laughs> other thing costs that many cents. Make it all balance out. Yeah, pretty much. Yep, yep. We just go into spreadsheets and kind of plug numbers in and see where it ends up. Interesting. It sounds like a pretty decent game, making a game, to, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, really, it really is, yeah. Um, I mean... Uh, I think Eric Lang says, like, you know, some games he doesn't like because it, it feels like making game. It feels like work. And I think there is something very similar about, you know, the process of making a game and, like, playing a, a customizable game like Netrunner, like a deck-building game, where you actually go in and, you know, you are the designer of your own deck. Right. And you're trying to balance all these different things and make sure that you get something that actually functions by the end of it. And you don't know if you're right. Like, you know, you have to wait and see how it plays out. Yeah. Cool. Um, so since, what was XCOM like the first commercial board game that you'd actually designed? Because you started straight in the LCGs, right? Right. Uh, I did a, a Civilization expansion. Oh, uh, cool. Wisdom and Warfare expansion for Civilizations. So that was like the first board game project that I actually uh, jumped in on, and that was awesome. I had a lot of fun doing that one. So basically you're you're cornering the market of board games based on popular Firaxis uh, video game franchises. <laughs> yep, yep. That's yes. that's very true. Perfect. And I also also did Warhammer Disc Wars, not to be forgotten. That is a fantastic little game. If you want like a you know a Warhammer fantasy battle experience in an hour, or any sort of 
epic battle experience in an hour like you really can't go wrong with that game it's tough because people don't really know what genre it falls into it's not miniatures game it's not a card game it's not a board game you know it's a disc game and so you know i, I think people are initially skeptical like uh, what how i don't i don't understand but like man that game is fun and i had a ton of <laughs> ton of fun working on it and i think it's i think it's a little bit underappreciated so everybody should go check it out cool cool is that does it involve actually flicking discs or is it just moving them around or you just, you just yeah yeah <laughs> So the original version of the game, which uh, we released around the year 2000, like 15 years ago, there was some dexterity elements, but uh, those are no longer in the game. So ah. you really just flip disc for movement. So they flip flip over. So it's like this disc oh, has a movement of three. Okay. I've, I've seen people yeah, playing And you yeah, flip yeah. it across across your like felt mat. And then when you come into contact with other discs, you fight. And, uh, you know, it has... Most, you know, it has a kind of a chess-like feel to the maneuvering, and then it has right. some battle dice for ranged attacks, which add a little bit of random chance to it, which keeps things exciting. Cool. Cool. So, but since since at least primarily you'd been doing card game stuff, when you went over, like, whole hog, it sounds like XCOM was at least the biggest project you'd done board game-wise? Uh, that was the biggest project I'd done at the time, board game-wise. Now, Runebound 3rd Edition is kind of bigger than XCOM uh, in a way. Yes. Um, and th- that was really exciting to, to take that game, you know, the second edition, and, and kind of reboot it for for a new audience. Right. Well, we'll talk about that. Let's talk about that in a sec. Um, but in either Runemound or XCOM, like, were there any, like, big surprising differences processor design-wise as compared to all the LCG stuff? I mean, obviously, we talk about, like, all the components of things. Right. I imagine you might have expected that. But yeah. was there anything that was, like, really surprising when you're like, oh, man, okay, this this board game thing is actually a bit of a different beast from the LCG stuff I've been doing. It, it is a little bit of a different beast because, like, if you have a cool idea, you can't just kind of, like, set it on a shelf and then, like, go back to it later because, you, you know, oh. you don't always always know if you're going to get a chance to expand the game or not. And so, like, a lot of times in Netrunner, I'll have an idea or somebody will give me an idea, and I'm like, that's cool. And I just, like, throw it into our slush pile. Like, all right. You know, it, it doesn't really fit into what we're currently doing, but... But, you know, we, we might very well do that in the future, and I can just kind of put it there and bring it back out when I want it to. Mm. If you have a good idea on a board game, you have to be like, shoot, that's a really good idea, uh, but I don't think it fits. But if I don't fit it in now, like, maybe maybe it actually never fits. And right. so you have to figure out, like, well, should this fit in? You know, does this need to exist right now? Or is it okay to just kind of, you know, be like, well, I guess it, it won't happen and am I okay with it not happening? Is it actually better than an idea that I currently have? So you're kind of like always perpetually judging ideas and card effects and abilities and rules against other ones, trying to see like what makes the cut, like survival of the fittest sort of a thing. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, um, it feels like at least digital games, obviously there are like digital games that you play online for like a, a Dota or an MMO or whatever, but certainly for games like the ones Jesse and I tend to make on where like it comes out and it's, it's done, basically. <laughs> that I've often, yeah, I've definitely felt that same kind of thing where it's like, oh, this is cool. It would be cool if we could get it in. Can we get it in? And you're like, well, I know if we don't get it in, it's just gone, probably. Because yep, we're, not, we're not making, like, you know, an Assassin's Creed or whatever where we know in 13 months there'll be another one. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but I think it's also in, in games, video games especially, a lot of times why the sequel's so good is because that's what they wanted to make the first time. Yeah. But, right. But they just, but they just couldn't, you know, exactly. have the time and resources to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I have noticed that, like, you know, a video game comes out, but then they, like, refine the mechanics or put in some tweaks to the mechanics that you're like, wow, that's amazing, and it actually makes the game better. 
Yeah, nine times out of ten. That does make sense. That's all the stuff they want to do in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> right. Not like you guys, who just gonna be like, I have a cool idea. I will write it on a piece of paper. Pretty much, and, and yep. then I'm done. File it away. We have That's to be it. Like, let's have let's have a, 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 a let's commit to fifty hours of work to do this one thing uh, and see how it pans out. And then it might spill the crap. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, no. I honestly, I'm amazed by you know the amount of work that goes into a game. It's kind of mind-boggling in the digital space. Like just to implement an idea takes so much effort and time. You can't just kind of like redesign on the fly like you can on a tabletop game. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you guys feel a little bit of that when you were working with uh, the 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 um the the app part of XCOM? Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. Like, we're throwing around crazy ideas for, like, mini games or other things that the app could do, and you're like, well, is this a crazy idea that's actually worth implementing, or is it a crazy idea that it's just a crazy idea and we leave it at that and move on? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and usually it's just yeah. a crazy idea that you leave it at that and move on because you're like, it's not even worth implementing. So <laughs> yeah. you do have to kind of make that determination. If you don't have an app, though, you're like, oh, crazy idea. Sure, let's try it out right now. Like, why not? We'll right. go for it. Yeah. Um, but you said briefly that the next big, and I think the only other announced thing that you're working on is right. the newest edition of RuneBound, correct? Yep, that is correct. Yep. So RuneBound, again, I did I had a relatively limited exposure to like more complicated board games when I was a kid, but this is, I guess, kind of like a not dissimilar from Netrunner, I suppose, like a game that had been quite popular in the in in the in the eighties or the nineties. Nah, uh, well, the first uh, edition came out in two thousand four, and then the second edition oh, okay. followed a year later in two thousand five. So ah. it's about a ten. It's about a ten year old game. Okay. Yeah, but uh, it's a fantasy adventure game. So you take control of a hero and you move around the map, going on quests and exploring and fighting monsters and kind of leveling up your character as you go until you can fight the big boss at the end. So is it also is it cooperative? Is it competitive? It is competitive. That okay. said, the game uses a scenario system, so. Uh, theoretically, we could release, you know, cooperative, semi-cooperative, competitive scenarios, whatever we want, uh, depending ah. on depending on how the game game sells. Right, so right. there's is, definitely, you know, expansion potential there. Right. Is 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 that kind of flexibility? Do you find like you 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 feel like those are your favorite kind of games to work on when you can uh, spread the space out in a bunch of different directions, or do you kind of like a more uh, contained uh, experience? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think as as, as as a designer, you kind of want the flexibility, but as a player, I, I <laughs> prefer competitive games to like semi co-op or co-op games. Like I usually find competitive games to work better because a lot of times in co-op, and this was one thing that I was really glad that we could do in XCOM, like it kind of falls to the alpha player or armchair quarterback issue where somebody else is just telling someone what to do on their turn because it's the best choice and it's obviously the best choice. It's objectively the best choice. And yeah. so they just go right. along with it. And so like the best player kind of actually plays the game and everybody else just watches. That's, yeah. kind of, that's called like pandemicing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But, it, but in XCOM, you know, there's actually now a time pressure. And so there's so much to worry about on your turn. You can't actually really tell the other player what to do a lot of the time. You can give them advice and stuff, but like they are still making the decision and they're kind of under the gun. Right. Was uh, that so. kind of a dis- deliberate decision you guys made design-wise to avoid that sort of one-player yeah. dominant? Interesting. Yeah, it was. Cool. So, it, yeah, it seems to work out pretty well. Nice. And, uh, yeah. So, that I mean, I feel like that's a cooperative game that, you know, gives you a slightly different experience. Um, and then something that you can just, like, math out and take all the time you want on. Because, I mean, technically, most games, you could do that. Like, one of the big differences in digital games that aren't, you know, turn-based is the real-time element. 
Hmm. And in a board game, you usually don't have the real-time element. So whenever we can introduce that, I think that's a pretty cool thing because it adds a little bit more skill of being able to make decisions under under pressure. And that's why I also think, like, for Netrunner, you know, everybody's like, why are the finals timed? Like, why do we have timed finals? And it's like, well, it's a skill to play fast. Yep. Uh, <laughs> of course, of course, right. Definitely. Uh, well, speaking of finals and kind of as as your 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 tenure over Netrunner is drawing to a close, I mean, obviously, we, we know you're not stepping away from the game completely. Right. Just less of a day-to-day involvement. Correct. Um, looking back over, you know, what... I, th- I think it is fair to encapsulate kind of like the first chapter of the game. Um, are there some things in there that have really, like, been surprising for you? Kind of when you guys started being like, we're going to reboot this Richard Garfield game from the <laughs> 90s. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously... It's, it seemed like you guys weren't expecting the level of success the game would have. No, I, I don't think we were. And, yeah, that was surprising, you know, kind of how well it was received. And, you know, the fact that it, it seemed to be flying off the shelves and all the initial reviews were incredibly positive. Like, that was that was cool. Like, I knew that I liked playing the game. And when I was designing <laughs> it, I'm just like, you know, I didn't really think about it. But I basically made the game that I wanted to play. And right. it, it turns out that a lot of other people want to play this awesome game, too. And so... Uh, it's definitely a testament to you know Garfield's original design that we didn't need to make more changes because when, if, if you think about a lot of other games that came out in the mid 1990s, like it, we probably would have redesigned like the entire thing. <laughs> right. If you guys were making Rage 2.0, Rage 2.0. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, Rage. Rage, Spellfire, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, it would. The whole game would probably almost have to go. But you know, right. Netrunner. You know, we only had to tweak stuff. Like we didn't actually have to like replace uh, a whole lot, which is uh, pretty impressive, I'd say. Nice. Were there any aside from that, like level of initial success, you know, from the from the beginning of the inception, as you're kind of looking at where the game is right now? Were there any other like really big surprises that you kind of weren't expecting? Ah, uh, man. I mean, there's always like you know card by card level stuff that you know you, know, you don't necessarily expect. Like uh, some of the some of the cards in the core set, and I've talked about this before. You know, are definitely a little bit more powerful than, than other cards. Like you can look at Astro Script, and obviously we wouldn't make that card today uh, <laughs> it, it, if if it would come out in a cycle, or uh, you know even even something like Data Sucker just gives you so much economic uh, advantage uh, by making successful runs. Like you know there are cards that turned out to be more powerful than initially anticipated, but on the other hand, like they do kind of define the environment, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And so I, I wouldn't say I'm like super surprised. Like I don't actually, really. I have predicted some things, and they haven't come true. Like I'm still waiting for the deck, uh, that that uses Starlight Crusade funding to win a major tournament. Come on, guys, you, you gotta help me out here. <laughs> but, Gauntlet Throne, Gauntlet Throne. But but for the most part, I, d- I don't really try to you know predict exactly how the meta is going to shake out like you know players will always surprise you and come up with with different stuff than than you even think is good with with the testing group just because there's so many more people playing it and talking about it and one thing i have been happy with is is that while you'll you know generally you'll see kind of the same stuff kind of rise to the top in major tournaments uh, it seems like locally with with different metas there's a lot of experimentation and things uh that wouldn't necessarily uh, get played in a major tournament, doing well and winning local tournaments just because their meta is different, and I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure, for sure. What, um, what, what was it like actually working with uh, the victors of some tournaments to create card games in your game? <laughs> right. Uh, so it, it's always interesting working with with champion cards because you know you <laughs> yeah. want to make 
you, you want to make sure it's a good card because you know this is kind of their one crack at it probably right, right. Uh, <laughs> you know unless you're tom kapoor and call of cthulhu or jeremy zorin who happens to win like every every game that we ever create uh, is, is that his like weird backdoor ffg job path the <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna win so many world championships, design so many cards. You guys are just gonna hire me. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's designed a lot of cards, actually. Uh, <laughs> so, so you never know. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a process. Like you go back and forth. Like the important thing is, like you want to make sure that they have a card that they're happy with, and you also want to make sure that you have a card that isn't too good. Um, so, like, yeah. That said, I usually give a slight allowance for champion cards. So, like, if it's air on the side of power or air on the side of, you know, I guess uh, non-power, I'd air on the side of power if I if I can uh, for those, just to make sure that they're they're impactful and they see play. Because you know, this is the grand prize that we are offering right. yeah. for for our world's champion, and and you know, you want to make sure that that it's uh, a good card. Which, but, which I've, I've been explaining to people that aren't too familiar with card games about Netrunner because I'm always talking about it, of course. And when I actually show them an architect or something and I say, see, and the guy won it, and so we got to do this card, and his name's right there. Right. Like, it actually blows their minds over any, like, oh, and they won you know $20,000 at some tournament or something. It, mm. the, the idea of immortalizing yourself in your favorite game seems like a way, way cooler thing to, to be happening to players. It is pretty cool, and I, I do hope it is immortal. Like, one of the awesome things that we were able to do with Game of Thrones 2nd Edition is, like, bring back those champion cards. Like, we've actually committed to making sure every single champion card gets reprinted within the 2nd Edition, and obviously it, it has to be tweaked for that environment. But, you know, we want to make sure that those cards do stick around and are kind of defining in the game that they are a part of. Oh, like all the previous 1st Edition Game of Thrones world's winners. Right. Right. Cool. Exactly. Oh wow! I didn't realize that. Nice. Very cool. And even even going back to like the the CCG because we actually reprinted and started bringing back like the CCG cards in the first edition LCG, and then we're going to try to bring them all forward into the second edition. Oh! Oh! Wow! That that is actually really rad. Wow. Yeah. So uh, obviously, you know, that's slightly different than Netrunner, where hopefully we just keep making more world champions for forever. All right. But, <laughs> yeah. Forever and ever. Maybe, forever and ever. Maybe it'll be one of us, Jesse. Yeah. One day, like a dream. It, it won't. Be. It's not going to be one of us. <laughs> um. So is now now again now that you're stepping aside from it a little bit, are you going to be kind of more excited to to be actively playing the game like? As, you know, ideas that are being generated by Damon and whoever else, are you going to be more curious to be, like, part of that active in-house playtesting group to see new ideas that you not... You, you haven't necessarily watched march down the entire road? Right. Um, yes and no. I, I mean, <laughs> on the one hand, it, it is exciting to see other ideas. On the other hand, it, you know, you kind of have to be careful because it's always like, oh, but I might do it differently. But that's the whole point. Like, you yeah. know, again, there's no right answer. Like, right. I might do it one way. Damon might do it another way. Eric Dolan might do it a third way. Uh, and so, you know, like the the first like the cycle after Mumbad, you know, it was uh, a little bit rough just because I'm like, all right. I, you know, I, I, I throw some ideas into the file and I talk to Dame about them and I, I give him advice. But like, ultimately, I'm like, you know, I, you know, I can't worry about it right now. Like, that's not my main job. I'll, I'll give him my feedback. I'll give him my advice. But, you know, you have to step back and realize like, all right, you know, this is not my baby anymore. Uh, I'm an advisor. I'm a consultant. And, 
you know, it's it's weird. Like uh, it's strange to you know be you know hold the reins of power and then you pass the reins of power on, but you're still like you know you're still like kind of standing behind the throne a little bit, you know, like right. watching out how how things go. So it's uh, <laughs> it's a strange feeling, but but overall, uh, I feel pretty. I feel pretty good. Like I am excited to play the game and to honestly dive into like the the current meta a little bit more because like I almost never seem to play that um, mm. when you're testing the future meta for right. the most part. Right. Um, ha- what? So swapping from LCGs to board games is that kind of a deliberate? Like, did you want to spend a little more time on the other side of the fence? Right. Uh, so I I did want to go to the board game department, but I also wanted to work on Netrunner. And so, you know, that's kind of where I ended up working on Netrunner while working on these board game projects. But eventually, it, you know, I knew I would have to transition fully right. to board games. Uh, and I, I was okay with that. And uh, I like the variety of board games, the challenge of board games. And uh, I mean, I'll always love card games. Like, honestly, I think there's almost nothing better than a customizable card game where you can personalize and build your decks. But but uh, you know the board game department needed another designer, and I was I was available, and I thought it would be an exciting challenge. Right. Cool, man. Yeah. Always stay hungry, right, Luke? That's right. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> you always have to challenge yourself and push yourself because you know you can't rely on other people to do that. Yeah. Sweet. Well, do you have anything, anything else asks for for uh, Mr. Litzinger? I I I I had a quick one being uh, that we got a chance to check out the cards before they came out in the proxies. At one point, only I believe cyborgs or G mods could use could like mess with their bodies. Right. At, 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 like at one point, they were using their their uh, the players' keywords. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, uh, yep. and and I, I, I can see why you took it out because they're very, very cool and it's awesome to just start augmenting the crap out of your runner. But um, were, were all those things in place with that in mind when you came up with those kind of key key elements and all the uh, player IDs? Uh, so as far as like the different like uh, subtypes on, on the IDs. Right. Yeah, I, I, we knew it was something that we might explore. Like, honestly, the the subtypes in the core set are a little bit scattered like you'll find stuff like an orthodox on akitaro watanabe and and you're like what what does that do what does it mean Um, (laughs) it means he's the most unorthodox sysop on the planet he's the only one (laughs) yeah i mean he actually is a little bit unorthodox because with sysops kind of like the design goal behind a sysop is to have an active ability like a paid ability like i want them to do something i want them to you know be like oh this is the moment when the sysop steps in and Uh. akitaro doesn't do that which is why he's unorthodox but like nobody's gonna understand that like (laughs) And so it's like, well, that doesn't make sense anymore. Like, people don't get it. It doesn't like, it doesn't really tell you too much about him, uh, you know, as a person. Like, what does or, un, maybe he's unorthodox, but he's still working for a corp. Like, he's still part of the you know machine. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you want a subtype to either do something mechanically or do something from a flavor standpoint and not confuse players and that kind of confuse players. So you know you won't see that anymore. And we've tried to make you know a more concerted effort to be a little bit more consistent with subtypes and make sure that we're using the ones either in a flavor standpoint or a game mechanic standpoint that we put on the cards. And and you'll definitely find some floating around that that don't really fulfill either of those uh, and and we wouldn't probably put those on the cards anymore right <laughs> but yeah with you know with cyborg and gmod we're like maybe we use these in the future but they're they're primarily there for flavor and right. and we didn't necessarily put it on the runner from you know a mechanical side to to balance things based on what cards they could or couldn't use and so that's why it's hard to like go back in and actually add something that directly interacts with it because like we might not want uh, you know, 
Gabriel Santiago to be a cyborg, like right, right, right. for the purposes of of, of balancing those right. cards. Yeah, those subtypes were never really built with like as much of you know m- mechanical forethought in mind. So then Correct. retrofitting them might be right. a bit more challenging. Interesting. That makes sense. Cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, one of my favorite like subtle flavor subtype things is on the um on the Forger console. Like right. all the other consoles were unique. Like they had the diamond unique pin mm-hmm. thing. And when I was um, uh, writing up, like I, I've been maintaining the Netrunner card of the day thing for a while, and I was writing up the entry for Forger when it came out. So I put, just, I'm like, oh, it's a console. It definitely has that thing on there. So I just put it on there without even looking. And in the comments of the thread, someone's like, oh, that console's not unique. I'm like, well, of course it is. All consoles are unique, right? Because <laughs> like, I mean, what's the point? It's like, you only have one console installed anyway. Why would it not be? And they're like, no, it's definitely not. I looked at them like, oh, it's not. Right. And then I put, and then I think I put. I'm like, well, maybe that's is that on purpose? Maybe it's on, I mean, it's like it's a fake thing, supposed to be losing, like where you are, or whatever. And then you caught, then you confirm that Twitter. It's like, oh no, that's just there for for flavor. And I'm like, that's yeah. subtle, but that's goddamn <laughs> smart, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's just a disposable console. You know, it's like a prepaid cell phone or something. You right. take it out, use yeah. it, and buy another one off the shelf uh, yeah, it's tomorrow. Basic, it's basically a burner. It's yeah. not some cool thing that this crazy hacker put together in their weird workshop. It's like, no, right. they just bought it and then threw it away. <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, that's, a, that's always the thing that interests me, right? Like, that there are occasionally elements of the game that are ostensibly mechanical, but in some cases they can be used just exclusively to, like, uh, express thematic or storytelling bits in the game without actually really engaging with the rules, but just using the framework that the rules exist in to leverage that stuff, if you know what I mean? Right. Is that is that, like, a very... As you guys are kind of developing the cards and, like, coming up with the ideas, it's like, okay, well, mechanically this card has this role it needs to fulfill... What theme can we put on that? Is that often like one of the elements you guys are considering? Like, okay, well, well, how can we? What, what's an interesting way we can kind of play with the theme on this card, given the given the, you know, the various knobs and levers we have at our disposal? Yeah, I mean that's definitely something that you look at. I mean, you want each card to like tell a story, and to to be consistent with itself in addition to the the card pool as a whole. And so when you're first designing a card, like there's two ways to approach it. Like one is the the bottom up, which is you start with the mechanic, and then you you find a theme that fits. And the other one is like the top down, where you actually come up with a theme or something that you want to reflect, and then you figure out what mechanic goes into it. And so you're always going to kind of use a combination of the two, and sometimes you switch back and forth. Like you start with a mechanic, you add a theme to it, and then you figure out like, well, this theme actually could be expressed better if we now tweak the mechanic and and so on and so forth and so you always kind of go back and forth until you you find the sweet spot between the two right but uh yeah that's that's definitely something that we try to keep in mind and you know sometimes sometimes you might you might change something as well based on like the art like the final art that comes in because it isn't always going to match exactly what you you know wrote into the description and so then maybe you make further tweaks there right right right, right. uh is we talked to zoe about this as well mm. but are there any like specific like little thematic bits that are like some of your favorites like bits where it's like oh in this case the rule thing and this other thing fit together well wait wait even better than i had hoped Oh, man. I mean, there's probably a lot of those. I'm, I'm terrible coming up with, like, specific examples. But I do honestly, like, love sometimes when we can mess around in, in the flavor text of the game. I, I think that's super cool. And, uh, you know, like, like Curtain Wall, for example, is is, is kind of fun. And, and when we can kind of almost, like, break <laughs> break the fourth wall of the game and, like, like talk to the, the player directly and right. kind of remind them that they, they are playing a game 
I always always like those or like uh, you know um, I think it's in Dead and Destiny. Yeah, the 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 card that uh, basically doubles the subroutines TLDR on the on the the next piece of ice. Right. Like there's rules text there that you know you can't just say double the subroutines you know resolve them twice on the next piece of ice but we can always add into the flavor text and right <laughs> i i always had fun kind of coming up with those and, and seeing where we could kind of add that that little bit of uh wink wink to the players nice <laughs> yeah, that is definitely like they're, they're i mean you know so some of my favorite games are the games that do a really good job of marrying their theme and their mechanics like i know some people love like the super hardcore German games where, like, basically all you're actually doing is solving a maths puzzle, and it right. says, like, oh, but you're in the desert <laughs> looking for opals. And these are camels. Or something. Yeah. But it's, like, uh-huh. actually, you're just solving a maths puzzle. Um, and one of my favorite things about, like, a lot of the games FFG makes, not just Netrunner, is they manage to actually make the games, like, very evocative and exciting. Like, it's actually transportative, but not in a way that's just, like, Totally on the other end, the the well, I don't like the term the total like Ameritrash <laughs> end of the side where it's just like it's all bits and bobs and pieces, but it never really fits together nicely. Like right. the the ones that it, it's very, it feels like it's it's not easy to find that sweet spot in between the where the rules and the me- mechanics are both reinforcing each other, but somehow it feels like you guys have really figured out how to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I mean, sometimes it comes together nicely. So like. For example, like London Library, for a long time in testing, you actually could install any program off of it. Um, and that was a problem because obviously there's an ID printed called Noise who just right. spam <laughs> viruses. And so it's like, you know, I usually hate calling out specific things that you can't do just for balance reasons because it's like, no, 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 you can't do it just because we said so. All right. But well, in this case, because we had like, well, this is like a, a college library, like, you know, we're actually able to like theme it in such a way that it's like, no, you can actually, they don't have like a restricted virus section that you can go into and, and check out these programs or anything. <laughs> right. You know, when you log on to their servers, like that doesn't exist. Like, so, so thematically and mechanically, we're kind of able to, to add that restriction to the card and it actually made sense and I was okay with it. Whereas if it was, you know, some other server like I, themed in a different way, like I, I probably would have had to come up with a, a different way to fix that problem. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's interesting how there's like sometimes just a change to the or embrace further embracing the theme can sometimes serve as like a release valve for right. something something else you need to balance in the game. God, it's so yeah. cool! I love yeah. it so much. And I, and, and that, I think that's got to be why people just like scarf up spoilers so fast because it's figuring out the theming and the flavor of the carved is also part of the experience of Netrunner. Yeah. Instead of just like cramming it into your decks and stomping some guy or, or, or mm-hmm. gal with it. Just, just just like piecing together like why a card does what it does, what it's titled, what it's saying, who's involved in the card is just like another awesome little experience. That you yeah, it is almost like a little mini game that, that yeah. people can explore. And yeah, the Easter eggs there are, are super cool. Honestly, one Easter egg that that we put into like the very first FAQ, it might be in the first couple, is that we hid, bought it. And so if you, if you had an interactive PDF um, which I don't even know if there are any still around, like the interactive versions of them. Uh, you can actually like go to the last page of, of the FAQ and uh, click on the quantum hi-fi ring uh, and the sure gamble art on the last page, and it would actually change the cards that she was holding to Netrunner cards. What? Um, and I, I never saw anybody actually like find that, and I don't even know if you can anymore, like you know, with the website changing and 
and stuff. I'll have to go and, and see if that, that still functions, if there's something out there that works. If, but if, like, If you download a copy of Acrobat Reader 6.5. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, and, yep. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, so we, we definitely, like, you know, try to put stuff in there for people to find, and it's always cool when they do. Oh, but that's the only thing that I'm aware of, like, people never really found. Right, right, right. Well, you always got to have one 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 uh, chest of treasure that's buried too deep for anybody to find. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, Lucas, is there any is there anything else? Any other thoughts for us? Things you're looking forward to in the game? Definitely uh, looking forward to that um, Starlight Citadel champ, right? I am. That's I am right. looking forward to the, the Starlight Citadel champ. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Get those doubles rolling. Uh, I think that'd be great. Uh, you know, I'm really excited to have Dan Destiny come out in, in wide release and for everybody to get their hands on it. I think it's an awesome box, and I'm, I'm really glad, you know, that we were able to, to fit the mini factions into a game in a way I think that feels natural and exciting. Uh, and, uh, man, uh, it's going to be it's gonna be pretty exciting to see where it, where it takes the competitive meta i think it will definitely have an impact yeah just it, it feels like it'll be released just far enough before worlds that people will like start to chew on it a little bit yeah ho- hopefully yeah. Uh, i'm not i'm not sure exactly what the timing is but hopefully yeah well that's pretty exciting oh yeah i'm definitely excited to see how all that stuff shakes out at worlds and beyond I know it, it puts me in a terrible spot where <laughs> i have no idea what i'm gonna play at worlds none uh-huh. zero absolutely zero Right, play what you want to play, you know, whatever oh, yeah. you have the most fun playing, whatever you're most comfortable with. Like, you know, in some games you can kind of like, you know, tweak your deck, change out a deck, you know, a day or two before and, and do okay. In Netrunner, I think that's a recipe for, you know, disaster. Like, you know, to truly <laughs> right. be successful, you, you really almost need to be able to pilot your deck in your sleep because Worlds is a grind and you're going to be playing games and getting very, very tired over the course of it. Right. Yeah, well, I'm very excited to see how that all shakes out. Oh, yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, well, we had one last thing we wanted to mention. Uh, a very cool pal of ours over in the UK mm-hmm. has actually contacted all three of us for yep. a, a charity event that they're running. Um, it is called Charity Gift 2015, and it's taking place in the Brewhouse Pub in Sheffield in the UK. It's on the uh, 28th of November, and it's a charity tournament where all the proceeds are going to the Sheffield Children's Hospital Christmas Appeal. Um, So as part of the fundraising, what they're doing is they're auctioning off 32 different pairs of IDs that certain folks in the Netrunner community, including all three of us, have kind of selected, and then whatever you bid is what you end up playing at the tournament. Um, There are going to be loads of great prizes up for grabs, including like signed alt art, signed celebrity gift art prints, um, some custom playmats, and uh, and what is without doubt, and I'm not going to spoil it, <laughs> but it is without, without doubt the best homemade trophy oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Netrunner history. It is <laughs> I'm, fantastic. I'm a big fan of this trophy as well. Um, that sounds exciting. Jesse uh, actually drew two alt art cards. I did. For our pairing of IDs. I did. And it's pulling it right back to the 90s trashy loud colors and scan lines. Oh, it's bold. It's, it's, it's pretty wonderful. bold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I've I almost we won't say right what the IDs we picked. People should guess, and then once they have their guesses in their mind, <laughs> they should go to www32 like the numeral three, the numeral two, thirty two auctions.com slash charity gift twenty fifteen part one. All those numbers are just numbers. Um, 
Or people can just contact the organizer at highwire at gmail.com or on Twitter at nottopgearrh for more details about the tournament to bid on the charity IDs. Um, if you win the pair that Jesse and I selected, you'll actually get printed alt art cards. Yeah. Probably the only ones of those in, in that will ever existence. be made. <laughs> Drawn by the hand of Mr. Jesse Turner himself. That's right. And those are going to be really cool. Lucas, you also picked a pair of ideas. I did pick a pair. Yes, that's what, true. What did, I think people should hypothesize yes. both what Jesse and I picked together. We each we like, we like each got one. We each got one, yeah, kind yeah. of. Kind of. Um, and Lucas also picked a pair. So people should get those ideas in their mind, perhaps post them in various comment threads on this episode, and then go to that website and check out and see who was right, how close their predictions matched up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Lucas... Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, man, thanks so much. This is hey, great. thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Always, of course, of course. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can always email us at terminal7 at idlethumbs.net or follow us on Twitter. Uh, Lucas, you are also on Twitter, correct? I am, yep, uh, at RukasuFox. RukasuFox. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are going to be having our, depending on the timing, next episode probably going to be the big, the big, big, big. Yep. So huge. So massive. Data and Destiny Megacast talking about all these cool new mini factions. I know. As well as the the, the, the mountain of tags under which we will now sleep for all time. <laughs> uh, yep, that's right. Um, and we have a couple of very special guests lined up for that as well. Yep. So people should be should be hyped. They should be amped on this. For, for that. Sure. Um, and hopefully, maybe, Lucas, if possible, we'll try to sit down and chat some more at Worlds. We'll see. We'll yeah, that would be awesome. In. We'll at least get some games in. <laughs> all right. I'll... I'll have to bring my A game then. I'm sure you guys are gonna gonna beat me. <laughs> uh, <you'd> be surprised. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, thank you very much, and as always, thank you to Mr. Ed Harrison for letting us use his track Ten Soldiers" from the Neo Tokyo OST. You should grab that. It has a ring endorsement from all of us yep. and everybody else who's ever listened to it. I'm quite sure. That's at edharrison.bandcamp.com. And then the music goes there. Music, music, music. music. We are <laughs> very good. Music. We're back. Music. <laughs>